Good morning, HBC. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is the way. Before we get going, a little pop quiz. It's back to school time. Uh, except in my pop quizzes, there actually are no prizes or rewards in class, just public shaming, so beware of getting the wrong answer. Every teacher has their own way to do it. Pop quiz. If you've been around here a while, this is now going to be graded on a curve, but if you're new, don't worry about it. You can funk it. What's our mission statement at HBC? Anybody? I know now you're afraid to actually answer. I set myself up for failure. But our mission statement, anybody? Making disciples of Jesus Christ. That's right. To the glory of God. We throw that one on. Solideo Gloria, right, Vicky? Uh, but we are making disciples of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. That's the real, I guess, shortened version of our mission statement. So if you have seen some people getting baptized, that might be on the t-shirt. Uh, because that's what we are advertising if we were to advertise for our church. Uh, we would just want people to know that we're making disciples of Jesus Christ to the glory of God. Now that's the condensed version of our mission statement. Uh, the, the longer version that's somewhere in the catacombs of our website reads like this, Hickory Bible Church exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the great commandment and the force of the great, oh sorry, through the fulfillment of the great commission and the force of the great commandment. As is written in Matthew 28, 19 to 20, we are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has taught. And when Jesus was asked, yeah, what's the greatest commandment? And he said in Matthew 22, it's to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbors yourself. So that longer mission statement, if you were to want to get that tattoo, you'll need both arms, uh, is that we do exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission, making disciples in the force if you want to use, you know, we're trying to alliterate there, the fulfillment of one thing, the force of the other, the force of the great commandment is to love God and to love others. And it's those two commands of Jesus that define, I would hope it's not just for our church. I hope any church that wants to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth and proclaim the excellencies of Jesus Christ, that more would worship God the Father in the Son, through the Spirit, that they would all sign on for that, that our mission statement wouldn't be exclusive to us as if it's a really unique thing. It's really just taking two great, the great commission and the great commandment, and, and marrying them together in one statement. But it does, when you think about it, encapsulate what we are to do on this planet while we're around, which is to make disciples of Jesus to the glory of God. But it also includes in that how we are to do it. We're to do it in love. Love for God and love for others. And so one is a what and the other is a how. What are we to do? Make disciples. How are we to do it? And love. Why are we to do it? I guess you could add to that because he first loved us. Because he alone is worthy. And out of that grace, motivation, our gratitude is expressed in our actions, isn't it? That we will love God and love people as we seek to make disciples of Jesus to the glory of God. Now, why I bring that up, aside from it being our mission at HBC, is because I wanted to show you that the ideas that Paul is going to put together from chapter 12, which was all about spiritual gifts being used for the common good and the building up of the body, does have a connection to chapter 13, which is all about love. Upon a natural reading of this, if I just said, go read those two chapters next to each other, 
And uh, what, what would be the connection? Perhaps you know really well of 1 Corinthians 13 because you've heard it in a lot of places. It may not appear of what we just talked about of connecting the great commission of, of working to make disciples and to build up the church and to go to the ends of the earth with how we do it in love. But yet we see these two ideas, these two thoughts in the mind of the Apostle Paul right next to each other to show that they're not opposing ideals. That you have the really mission-driven Christian over here and they think nothing of the affections, nothing of loving God and loving others. And then you have the really lovely people over here. I'm not talking about your outward, you know, beauty, but, you know, the people that really are just all about love, not really concerned about what the mission of Christianity is for. We're just, you know, to hang out and love people. And Paul shows here in these two chapters next to each other, talking to this church in Corinth, that you cannot pull these two apart and have a healthy, fruitful church. You do need both. But he does say, if you look there in verse 31, as he says, be zealous for the spiritual gifts. Earnestly desire the greater gifts. I need to show you still a more excellent way. And he left us at that cliffhanger last week, which is why we're going to look at chapter 13 this week. is because he is saying, yeah, you can have all these spiritual gifts, but if you leave out this spiritual grace, this grace of love, how the church is ultimately to be built up, even we hear that language at the end of Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, as we talk about how gifts have been given to the church and the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastor's teacher for the equipping of the saints, for the building up of the body as we speak the truth and love to one another. The body grows into its fullness in Jesus Christ so that everything is working together as we are built up in love is the last statement of Ephesians 4.16. It's right there. And it's right here. And what Paul has now um, hinted at, I guess you could say, he's given you the, uh, the reason to come back this week when he ended last week saying, hey, there's a more excellent way, as, as, as amazing as it is to be in a church that is functioning in all of its gifts. As he told the Corinthians in chapter one, you have all the gifts. That would have been a sweet church to be part of, don't you think? I mean, to show up at this place, and in every spiritual gift that could be accounted for was there. But then you're like, whoa, there's a missing ingredient here. Where's the love between each other? Or is everybody just out for their own? Is everybody just kind of like, hey, man, I've got my gift. I'm in my zone. You do your thing over there. And we're on a mission together, but I can treat you however I want because of my gifts. And, and I even have the greater gifts. And it becomes inward and though active and even alive and impressive. Someone shows up in that church and is like, yeah, it was cool for a while, but there was just this thing missing. I, I didn't sense any of lo the love between the people, for me, for each other. And um, I think that's what that Christianity thing was about. If you put yourself back in the sandals of somebody in 55 AD, I think the leader of that movement called The Way said something about, um, you'll know my disciples by their, uh, what's the word? Theology. You know, the guy that can grow the beard that looks like John Calvin, or John Calvin, uh, Charles Spurgeon. 
You'll, you'll know my disciples by the guys that look like Spurgeon and talk like him and read all his books and tell you that they read all his books. Or you'll know my disciples by the uh, church that looks the most hip and cool and modern. And when you walk in, man, it's, it's bumping. It's, it's alive. And you, when you're next to them in traffic and they're singing their hearts out and you're wondering, are they singing a praise song or are they just into Harry Styles? You don't know by appearances only, do you? Is that how you'll know who the disciples of Jesus are? By their outward expressions of emotionalism? Or their intellectual expressions of their theological brilliance? Was that what Jesus said you'd know them by? See how I get everybody equally today, Vicky? And I just stand above it, right? Yeah. You'll know them by their love. And that's what this passage is about. He's saying, look, you got the gifts, but where's the grace? You're all about the gifts of the Spirit. But you've forgotten about the fruit of the Spirit. So let me show you a more excellent way. Let's read chapter 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. The law of the Lord is perfect for us this morning, isn't it? May it revive our soul. I'd be shocked if I pulled the room and asked if you have heard of this passage, heard it somewhere that more than 1% of you would say, that's the first time I've ever heard any of that. I'd be shocked because you hear it for sure if you've ever attended a wedding. According to one wedding website, Young, Hip, and Married, apologies to the old and nerdy, 1 Corinthians 13 is the most popular passage read at weddings. Reality is, though many know the passage, not many get the point. Because you can get lost in its beauty. 
Uh, This passage does float like a butterfly, yet it was written to sting you like a bee. So as much as the rapturous poetry and the brilliant prose can make us go, man, that's a passage. I am down with that. Beware what you're signing up for. Because this passage, the irony of reading it at a wedding, is what you are saying you are signing up for. This type of love, this isn't about flowery language and emotional highs and love at first sight. This is a call to action. Because as Paul presents it this morning to us, love is an ethic to obey. That's what you need to know at the beginning of this section. This is about an ethic, not an emotion. This is about action, not abstraction. And you will see that as we talk about it today and call on it now, probably next week. Yet very few people who hear these verses will make that connection between Holy Spirit-given gifts in chapter 12 and the Holy Spirit-filled fruits in chapter 13. It shouldn't surprise us for for Paul to have to um, call upon this most excellent virtue at this point in 1 Corinthians, uh, because if you have read the entirety of the letter to the the people in Corinth, um, you could see that he's having to address all these topics, and as he addresses them, uh, the missing ingredient behind the problem is, is not their improper functioning, it's that they're not functioning in love. I mean, mean, go no further just back to how he has to talk about the Lord's Supper. Again, we go to chapter 11, always wanting instruction for how to take the Lord's table. But the whole thing was prompted by, there are factions among you. When you meet together for the Lord's Supper, one's eating first and another is hungry and is drunk. And he's going, do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? Shall I praise you for this? They have an ethical problem here of love even when they're trying to take the Lord's Supper, to remember the Lord's sacrifice for them, they screw it up in a lack of love. And you could read back throughout the rest of this letter, and you could see that all the instruction for what's going wrong in the church is rooted and grounded in a lack of love. The fact that they won't address rampant adultery in their church in chapter 5 goes back to them what? Not willing in love to speak the truth to this person. Even as he says, put him out into the world so that in the day of judgment, his soul will be saved. People may say, wow, church discipline is so unloving. But is it though? Is it loving to let a person ruin their own life, go down a path to destruction? No, it's not. It's loving to speak up and warn and even go so far as to remove a person from the membership of the church for their good in Christ. That's what love does. You see, it's action. It's not just sentiment. We'll just keep praying. We'll just keep loving them. But the action that has to follow up with it shows whether you are really to put what you say you believe to the test. And that's what Paul has had to do in this entire letter. Now he finally gets to the point and he says with these spiritual gifts, these spiritual gifts, gifts from the Holy Spirit, how sad that they are, are being, how sad that they're being used without love. 
because you're rendering them useless. And God has given you all the gifts, the effects of them, the abilities in them, and yet you don't love each other. And what we want to remember as we enter now the the trees, as I've talked about the forest, is that we don't want to make the mistake to set spiritual gifts against spiritual graces. I'm not trying to do that today because Paul didn't do that. Catch what I'm saying? He's not trying to say, uh, so which is better, uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit or fruits of the Holy Spirit? No, that's not the problem. It's not, they're not against each other. They're to work in harmony with one another. He's just trying to help this church see uh, all you guys are focusing on are these spiritual gifts to the neglect of spiritual grace, the fruit of the Spirit, the preeminent fruit of all the fruits, the fruit of love. And we know that as we can look to the rest of the New Testament and see that love is always first on the list. It is the value or virtue, if we want to call it, that Jesus said will be to the defining mark, John 13, 35, of my disciples. You'll know my disciples by their love for one another. Or you go to Galatians 5 and you talk about the fruits of the Spirit in verses 22, 23. What's the first fruit on the list? It's love. In any New Testament passage that deals with how we are to deal with one another, you'll always see love coming up. It has the priority. It is preeminent. And if you get love right, you can get the rest right. So that makes love necessary, which is our first way to look at this chapter today. Let's talk about the necessity of love in those first three verses. Paul has structured verses 1, 2, and 3 in in poetic form because you could see the repetition of the phrase, the hypothetical, if I, if I, and if I, if I speak, and if I have, and if I give. This This is meant to catch their ear. This letter would have been read. So he could have just, just kept what he was doing and, and sounded very, uh, as he has been prior to this, uh, logical and sequential, and here's the issue, and here's where you're wrong, and here's how you write it. That's how he's been writing this letter. For whatever reason, a gifted orator that Paul was, a brilliant man that he was, he comes in through the side door and uses, uh, he does, he uses poetry. He, he appeals to the ear as much as he is appealing to the mind to get to the heart, to catch them and help them wake up and see where they're going wrong with this. Let's talk about this most excellent and necessary way first and how love is an absolute essential to the function of a church as they use their spiritual gifts. So first we see in verse 1, he tackles the preeminent gift in the Corinthians' mind because it's the one he has to address the most. Speaking with tongues. And he says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Now, we do know that Paul did speak in tongues. Verse 18 of chapter 14, he says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. So he's being hypothetical because he he does speak with tongues so we know he's not just like shooting straight front way black and white he's saying look uh, let's uh, imagine this imagine i can speak with the tongues of men i am i am able to speak as eloquently and effectively around the entire globe i can go anywhere at any time and i know every language to speak And I could even do it in such a way that appeals culturally. I can get over that barrier. Anywhere I go, the the audience is standing in an ovation. 
as I present the gospel of Jesus Christ. If I can do that. And then he goes, let's take it to the next level. I can transcend even earth to the heavens. I can go up into the heavenly realms. And I can preach a sermon to angels and get them to repent. As if they needed to. They don't. But he's, just, he's being hyperbolic here. He's saying, I can have the greatest ability with my mouth that has existed. But if I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm just reduced to my words. It, it's, it's pointless. It's fruitless. It's actually, and the point here is, it's annoying. It's awful. It's alarming. Because the, what he's highlighting here that would have been known in the, in the church at Corinth, they came out of, and we talked about this months ago, uh, cult religious practices. And it is known and attested to at the time to whip people up into a type of uh, ecstatic frenzy and emotionalism when they would worship these false gods. Drugs would be involved, but also music would be involved. And they would be using cymbals and gongs. And I'm not going to talk about, well, what was a gong like in Corinth? Google that later. What was a gong like in Corinth? Have some fun with that. The emphasis is really, it's not even to say that the gong or the cymbal's wrong. So percussionists, you're cool. It's that they are noisy and they are clanging. And that's all they're offering. Without love is the necessary ingredient in the gift of tongues. And however you speak, if you, you won't get harmony part of some greater symphony, you will just get a cacophony of sound. I got pulled into a reality TV show recently. It actually was uh, premiered on Wednesday night. It was called The uh, Republican Primaries. <laughs> Seeing if you're with me. And if you want to talk about disharmonious sound, exhibit A, it occurred to me in studying this passage and thinking on this verse about voices that are just talking, lacking love. You had a debate turn into a debacle. And, and, and here's the similarities. Um, you take any one of those eight candidates and you sit down at lunch with them today, one-on-one, -on -one, and you don't interrupt them and you don't try to jab them. Uh, brilliant people, highly educated. I'm sure they've gotten to the point they are standing on stage to run for president of the United States with not just education, but also eloquence. And yet in the absence of love, what did it devolve into? A gong show. Might make us think that really educated and enlightened people lacking love can sound downright stupid. So what's the problem? And I thought about that. What you saw on display in that primary debate was really what was the problem here. It was this loveless mentality that I've got to be out to defend me and make you look bad at any cost. Was that not what it was? I have to protect my own. I can start down this path of speaking and making my points, but the moment someone else chimes in and takes a jab at me, love falls to the ground. And now I've got to defend myself. And in defending myself, what usually happens? The person looks and sounds like a fool. And when everybody's doing it at the same time, 
Edifying words devolve into undignified amusement at best. And that's the world. So my question is, how much worse is it when it's in the church? How many times have we seen something like that in a church? Where loveless words have caused a church to crumble from within. When it's more about the point I need to make than the point to love you in making it. And it's just talking past, talking over. And I'm highlighting this in the church. I mean, you, could, you can apply loveless speech becoming a useless gift personally. I want to not divorce this from its context, that it is happening and it is hindering the ministry of a local church here in Corinth. But I think you can apply this personally into your life. When lack of love gets the best of you in some interaction using your tongue and what usually becomes the result of it. I mean, if you really think about that for a moment in the last argument you had with somebody else that you love and that anger welled up inside you and you got a little bit testy, didn't you have to go back and make up later and say, sorry, I lost my cool. I lost my temper. One particular application I'd like to offer to the brothers in here. Because Ephesians 6.4 does warn husbands, fathers, of how we use our speech. Speech to our wives or kids. In Ephesians 6.4, it's exasperating. It's provoking others to anger. You wonder why, dads, your speech can provoke someone else to anger? It's because they're just mirroring you. They're seeing it in you. The tone, the tact, the attack itself, the berating, the insistence that I'm going to drive this point home to exhaustion because you want to get your way. So brothers, I I would offer a particular application to us today to examine our hearts as we use our speech and maybe be so brave to ask the people that maybe you can harm the most with your words. How am I doing at that? Ask for feedback from someone, your spouse, your children, and say, do... And, and you could just, just take it right from this text. Hey, son, when I'm correcting you here, giving you instructions, does dad sound loveless? That's all you have to ask. Do I sound loveless when I'm doing that? Do you feel loved when I'm doing that? All of us, I'm sure, talkers in particular, whether the spiritual gift of preaching and teaching or merely just using exhortation in our daily lives, need to ask the question, where's the love? Because if we haven't, we are just a noisy, clanging voice. Next, moving from the speaking gifts, verse 2, to the, we'll call these, the spectacular gifts. So speaking gifts, he covers the territory in in verse 1 of 13 and says, love's the more excellent and necessary way because without it, you're just noise. Verse 2, he says, if I have these spectacular gifts, starting with the gift of prophecy, which in the time of Corinth was was directly correlated with being given revelation, Uh, to, to be able to speak up when you don't have a text in front of you and to say like, hey, brothers and sisters of the church of Corinth, I am concerned for a sin that I see in our midst. That would have been what the gift of prophecy would have been like. There was not as much uh, prediction of the future events as talking in the present realities of the things they see, motivated and urged by a work of the Spirit, the gifting of the Spirit, to speak up. 
And he's saying, what if you have that gift of prophecy? And look what he, he, he categorizes it. And by having the gift of prophecy, I can know all mysteries and I could have all knowledge. You know what that's the summation of? You know everything. Again, he's using hyperbole. But wouldn't you want to be this guy? I would want to have this guy as my friend. All is the key word. He knows all mysteries, as in he knows all the things that nobody knows. God's hidden revelation, he knows it. And then on top of that, he has all knowledge. So all the things God has revealed, you could play uh, a one of Bible quiz time with this guy. Oh, what's in Exodus 28, 14? He could rattle it off. Imagine being this gifted in a prophetic word, in a speaking word, in a knowledge word, that you know everything known or unknown. That's a spectacular gift, isn't it? What an asset to the church to have that person around. You just go to them all the time. Hey, what should we do? Um, here, here's what the word of God says. And here's what it also doesn't say. God just told me right now. It was a mystery. Let me reveal it. He gets it all. So that's pretty spectacular. And on top of that gift, if I can accompany that amazing gift with all faith. So he's just not a talking head. He could do all things. He has the faith that Jesus uh, talks about in Mark eleven twenty three. Faith to move what? Mountains. That's what Paul was referring to here. Whatever, for whatever reason, that, that thought lodges in Paul's head, and he brings Jesus' own words back and says, you could be the knowledge guy, you know everything known and unknown on planet Earth and in the universe, because God speaks directly to you. And then you have the faith to back it up. So with everything you know, you can make a mountain move. Pretty amazing. Except, if I don't have love, I am nothing. I don't think I need to exposit I am nothing. I'm a zero. I'm bringing nothing to the table. With all of those amazing gifts that could be useful for the gospel ministry in a church, to know everything and faith to do everything, and you are a nothing without something, and that something is love. It's the necessary ingredient. I've shamed myself before sharing this story, but it just came back to mind as holidays are on the way when I made a pumpkin pie two Thanksgivings ago and left out the sugar. It looked like a pumpkin pie. It smelled like a pumpkin pie. It had, I mean, everything looked, and, and it was amazing, and it tasted like garbage without sugar. It's the necessary ingredient. That pumpkin pie was nothing. What a waste of three hours of my life. And it was Thanksgiving. You need the pie. But this is the point Paul's making. I think why he says, I am nothing, because he's saying, I am this guy, is because when you think about those gifts, if you really had all those gifts he just mentioned, you really would think you are somebody, wouldn't you? You'd think you're the stuff. How could you not? There's no question you couldn't answer. Uh, there's no obstacle to faith in your life that you couldn't overcome. You would be the man. You would be the woman. You'd be somebody. And he says, you are nobody without the fruit of the Spirit of love. So there goes spectacular gifts. Charles Hodge, Princeton theologian, said, Satan doubtless had more intelligence and power than any man possessed, and yet he is Satan still. It made me think about our study in Daniel when we talked about what the Antichrist was going to be like. 
You know, the Antichrist is going to be a lot like this guy in verse 2. I mean, he is going to fool the world because he knows everything and he's got some impressive charisma that he can do everything, what we might call faith. But you know what he lacks? Why he's a fraud? Because he doesn't love God. And he really doesn't love anyone except himself. So a word of warning to us all. Does knowing a lot or in faith doing a lot make us feel at times like we're something special, God's gift to the church perhaps? Word of warning for all of us here would be pride is good at disguising itself by hiding out in your spiritual gifts. Wouldn't it be the last place you might look? Maybe this series has helped us look deeper and say, of the gifts that I know I have, beyond the surface of them is the lifeblood running through them, love. Love for God. Thank you, God, for this gift. It's from you. I love you so much. I'm thankful for it. And thank you for this church where I can use this gift for the good of others. Number two, spectacular gift. And then the third, verse three is now the... Um, We'll call these the sacrificial gifts. So verse 1, again, I'm just giving you some hooks to hang your thoughts on when you look back at verses 1 to 3. He covers speaking gifts in 1, spectacular gifts in 2, and now he covers sacrificial gifts in verse 3, which this might seem to be the, um, the most surprising because isn't what he says here, giving all your possessions to feed the poor or even martyrdom, surrendering your body to be burned. Um, isn't, isn't that like... Act, an act of love in and of itself? Maybe that's why he saves this one for last. I mean, giving things, sacrifice. Isn't love sacrifice? So can I have loveless sacrifice? Apparently you can, because he says, if I give, and again, you know, exaggerated language, all my possessions, so every, my, every last thing I have to feed the poor. And I surrender my body to be burned. I don't even hold myself back for the cause of the gospel. But do not have love. He doesn't say I'm nothing. He says it profits me nothing. And that's the telltale sign of the point he's trying to drive home here about sacrificial gifts. Loveless sacrifice is really about your profit. Despite whatever trappings you kind of um, surrounded him, you can be the most generous person and do it for your own praise. So in the end, it doesn't profit you anything. You could even be someone so zealous to be thought of so highly by Christians that you could go all the way to your own demise for yourself to be exalted. I know that's almost unfathomable, but again, he's using exaggerated language here. And he's saying, if you give your body to be burned as a Christian, but yet somewhere lurking deep inside your heart, there was this, I wonder what everybody's going to say about me when I'm gone. My son was asking me about that on the, um, uh, in the car ride yesterday because he saw a monument along the road to some, someone who had passed and he asked about it. And then he's like, Dad, do you think you'll ever get one? I'm like, what? <laughs> like, wouldn't it be cool if you got like a statue at church one day? That's <laughs> like, no, <laughs> but I'd put it in the kitchen where we make food and I'd be holding a sandwich and preaching. 
But he's saying, look, look you, can, you can put on a display for your own. And this is probably mostly, probably, and again, we can't get into the mind of Paul. Why do you keep it last? But when you think about this and think the most insidious of all the loveless gifts might be this one. Because why? Because it, it'd be really hard. It, and it is really hard, isn't it? To even the, the people we know don't love lo- the Lord or love God's people. Um, but when we see them give millions or billions of dollars away to help people who are suffering in the world, isn't it hard? I mean, even though we know they're not doing it for God, we're still like, I got to give that guy some credit. I, you know, I, you just kind of like, ah, oh, it's hard to bemoan generosity. It is. And yet he's saying, here's the problem. You're thinking about the prophets, not prophecy, but at the end of verse three, you're thinking of what can profit you here. And if you did something for your own gain, it's absolutely lost. And Paul is well acquainted with this language of loss uh, because he was the best of the best. Philippians 3, he gives his autobiography. And he says, look, if we're just going to count the externals in people and who's the best of the best, he goes, I myself might have confidence in the flesh. And he's not being exaggerated there. He's speaking dead honest truth. Philippians 3, 4. Look, if anybody would have confidence in their flesh that they're a good person, it's me. Um, I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. All he's saying is, I've got the credentials of like God's chosen vessel. I, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And here's this line. As to the righteousness which is in the law, It's a righteous law God gave. I was found blameless. So if there is somebody that could say there is something that could profit to my advantage, if if, if we could put things on a scale of accounting, when it comes to works righteousness, Paul would say, and he wasn't being facetious, and he wasn't exaggerating, he was saying straight up, I'd have something to put on the scale. If we're going to talk about profiting in the flesh, If this wasn't about righteousness from the truly perfect one, Jesus Christ, I'm there. But what does he say next? Whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That's the margins for when Paul talks about what's going to make a profit. Whatever was gained... I mean, talk about thinking you gained something if you gave every single thing you had away. Wouldn't pride again tempt you to think you did a really great thing? I mean, like, just play that, you know, I call it your sanctified imagination game right now. I use mint, you know, I want to see what my net worth is with money in and money out. And if I thought about, man, if I gave all that away, I think, I think I'd think something of myself. And that God would be proud of me for that. And then on top of it, to my son's hopefully not prophetic view of my future, I go down for the gospel. Right? But he says, man, you could have all that. But if you lack the virtue of love, you make no profit. Hodge says again, as I quoted him earlier, a man may give away his whole estate, even his life, and be in no sense a gainer because he did it out of vanity, one, or fear of perishing. To purchase heaven. To only increase his condemnation. Yikes. 
How much of an unpleasant surprise would that be for some people? You give everything away out of fear of perishing and to purchase heaven only to increase your condemnation in the last day. You know, I thought of the rich young ruler in this story. Um, Matthew 19, it's also in Mark 10 and Luke 18. But this, this guy, he did it all. He would have said, as to the law, I'm blameless. And so Jesus says, if you wish to be complete, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. So I asked the question to myself. So if this guy would have done what Jesus said right there, if he would have given away everything he had, would he have made it to heaven? No. No. Because you can't earn heaven. You know why he would have made it to heaven? What he says next, and come follow me. If you think the rich young ruler would have earned heaven because he gave away everything he had to the poor, you're wrong. Because then we're just back in the works righteousness cycle. That was just Jesus' way of getting to this guy's what? His heart, his love. What did he really love? He loved his stuff. So if this guy would have been thinking on earthly means, like, okay, wait, I hear that there's treasure in heaven. Ooh, I will, because he's adding up the accounts. And then he would be the guy with greater condemnation at the end, wouldn't he? Because he arrives there and finds out, but you didn't really follow me. You didn't do it out of love for me. You didn't do it out of love for God. You didn't do it seeing that your righteousness only comes from my giving my life for you. That's how serious it is to know that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Because the rich young ruler wouldn't have made it just by being obedient to a command if he didn't do it with his heart and say, I'm coming and following you. And if it means I have to sell everything, if that's your standard, then I'll do it. Because what you offer me, Jesus Christ, is far better than any of that stuff. And I'm not trying to earn a thing. Hodge, the end of that quote says, religion is no such easy thing. As in, you can't game it. There's no way to game it. There's no way to come out on the other end saying, ha, you know, I figured it out, God. I figured out a way to impress you. I can't be righteous enough by my good performance to earn my way to God, and yet self-righteousness will still try. So maybe just a word of warning to some here today. If you really think your good is good enough for the higher deities to accept you, it's only because you've made yourself your own God with your own standards. To quote the poet, if you think karma is a cat purring on your lap, you know what you've made yourself out to be? God. Because karma is this thing that's saying, oh, good job. You're so good. You're so great. You do everything. Everything should come back around for you. And this is Paul's point. You can give everything you have. You can think you are gaming the system that the universe works in some cycle of if I just do all the right things enough, it'll come back around. And that's not the way God works. When he offers you his son, Jesus Christ, and his perfect righteousness, you take all or you take nothing. So what's it going to be for some of you today? Do you see a way around finding the perfect righteousness that God demands? 
Because Paul has just boxed these Corinthians in. He has said, and he's talking to Christians here. You guys that are just in love, not with God and others, you're in love with yourselves because you're so amazed by the speaking gifts and the spectacular gifts and the sacrificial gifts. And you'll get nothing out of it at the end if you keep going down that path. And all he wanted to do in this first section, this wonderful section of poetry today, is to establish the simple point, the necessity of love. The essential quality of love. Why do you need it? Because it's necessary for your, as a Christian, effective and God-glorifying use of the gifts he's given you. But if you are not a believer here today, Love is the absolute ingredient you need to understand for you to be saved. To see that first, God gave to you before He expected anything in return. Romans 5 makes that very clear, that God demonstrated, He took action on your behalf. God demonstrated His love in this, that while you are a sinner, Christ died. Now, Paul writes, Christ died for you because he's writing to Christians. But if you're not in Christ today, Christ did die. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived a perfect life. He he did speak in a way that nobody spoke before. And he knew all mysteries. and, And he did have faith to move mountains. He could do it all. And he did make the ultimate sacrifice by giving his life. He did all those things. And why did he do them? So that you sitting here today in faith could quit looking to yourself for justification. Quit looking to yourself to think, I'll be all right with God if I just keep up my end of the deal. And to completely abandon all hope in your own righteousness and throw yourself upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what faith is. Forsaking all, I trust him. Would you put your faith in Jesus Christ this morning? Would you trust Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And ask Him to give you a new heart, a heart that could love Him. And out of that love, want to serve Him. And yes, out of that love, want to give and want to speak of Him and and want to act in faith for Him. But your first move today is called repentance. And repentance is turning away from yourself and your sin and turning towards Jesus Christ and seeing Him as your only Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for Your grace to us in Jesus Christ. It is by Christ and Christ alone that we may be saved. We thank You as Your children, Father, that we have gifts given by Your Spirit, promised by Your Son, that do enable us to speak and to serve and to sacrifice and to do spectacular things for the mission of the gospel. But we also have recognized this morning, Father, that absent love, none of it would matter. So may we be a church known by our love, love that we have for one another in here, that builds up and doesn't tear down and then love that we take into the world with the gospel message in acts of service and compassion and care so that people around us would know that we belong to you. 
We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.